LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. There was a moment back in 2020 when it felt like companies were finally taking on the real work of equity. The murder of George Floyd introduced a national racial reckoning. Businesses stepped up their DEI efforts. That's diversity, equity, and inclusion. New roles were created. Executives pledged to hire more diverse employees. And then they scrambled to find candidates. Even as it was happening, it seemed unsustainable. What would happen when the money dried up and public attention moved on? Well... That time is right now. More recently, as the economy has been so unpredictable, companies have laid off many of those new hires, including lots of people they brought in to help with all of those DEI efforts. And as the political winds shift here in the United States, the entire field of DEI is under a new pressure. Last year, the Supreme Court rejected the use of race-conscious admissions in higher education, raising the real possibility that corporate policies around diversity are going to meet the same fate. Here at Hello Monday, we believe that when we train our attention on equity, we expand opportunity for everyone. It's the right thing to do. So then there's the question, how do we remain committed to doing this work, even if our DEI programs dry up? That's what we're going to explore this week. Stick around. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Today's guest is Denise Hamilton. Denise is a diversity and inclusion leader who specializes in ally training. Her new book is Indivisible. How to Forge Differences into a Stronger Future. Denise has spent nearly three decades working within large companies to help people have difficult conversations. She grounds us in the history that allows us to understand what's happening with DEI right now and where it's going. She offers practical guidance for how we can think about the real work of creating community across differences. And she infuses us with her own belief that, yes, this work is harder than anyone might imagine but it's absolutely possible. Here's Denise. First of all, what is DEI? I think the term has been so manipulated, so bastardized, so convoluted that we don't even know what we're talking about. What I'm talking about when I use the term DEI is a set of practices, policies, um, structures, programs that are designed to create a more equitable workplace or space, school, whatever environment you're in. And so I think that following the murder of George Floyd, I think there was this rush to kind of do something. Everybody felt like we had to go do something. And quite frankly, a lot of it was performative rather than a true changing of heart, changing of spirit. And I also think inclusion specifically in the way that I think about it, it's a value. Right. It's very hard to measure, right? And 
for the this value of inclusion, we've tried to pick the easiest, lowest hanging, sometimes the most insignificant metrics because we want something to put in the annual meeting report. Right. Right. So right. it's easy to add a couple employee resource groups and have a potluck for Chinese New Year. Like those things are really easy and they make for great public relations, but they're not the work of changing hearts. They're not the work of changing direction and policies and structures. And that work is harder. Right. right? And so there's this limitation that's been placed on it. I would also say, as someone who works in this space, that there were a lot of people that entered the space that were passionate about it, but didn't necessarily have the skill set for it. This work has to be done from the scar and not the wound. Mm. You can't be an open pile of hurt and emotion going into spaces to, to create peace, right. right? You have to be healed to a certain point. Um, and so... A lot of conversations have ha- have been happening that needed to happen better. But I also think this is nascent. We're kind of just starting and we're learning and we're refining these things. So I'm, I'm actually op- optimistic and super bullish. I'm glad that you landed on optimistic and super bullish. Um, <laughs> and as I understood it, what I heard is the political landscape is changing right now, that the norms that govern our society are changing right now. And that there is a backlash going on inside our companies. I want to take a few minutes before we talk about your work to hear your thoughts on on what's going on with DEI policies and programming and what it means for people in your role. Mm. So we feel like this is new, but this isn't new. Mm. You know, I think we need to open up some books and read them instead of banning them. Right. There are so many stories of this exact thing happening over and over and over again. The same people that are quoting Martin Luther King Jr. forget that when he died, he had a 67 percent disapproval rating in the United States. He didn't get a Nobel Prize from America. He got it from outside of America for his work on America. Nobody likes change. We talk about it like we love it. But the reality is... Our stories do not give us up easily. Yeah. They have us by the throat. And so when you come in and you try to show how things need to be changed, you always have to budget for the resistance. You always have to budget for what I call homeostasis, the the pressure to push things back to normal. You know, the good old days. I'm not sure when the days were so good, but... <laughs> There's, that's, that's normal, and we need to factor that in. Um, so when I think about um, the political landscape right now, it feels very familiar to me. We forget that Ruby Bridges, was, who was six years old, she's a baby. She had to be escorted by the National Guard to go to the first grade. Yeah. This is not new. Yeah. There's always been resistance, and everyone thinks— I would not have been in that crowd. I would not have been in that crowd. Truth is, maybe you would have been. And that's hard. That's a really hard idea to absorb. Well, I think that what you're talking about there is so important to keep in mind when we talk about this, which is the difference between personal agency and systemic shifts and systemic changes. 
And I think what I hear you saying is that systemic change is slow moving and it's a bit circular. We go back and then we go forward and we go back and then we go forward. And our goal, our opportunity is to hold the vision regardless of whether we're moving backward or forward in any given moment. Absolutely. And we have a confounding variable right now, Um, social media. We have the ability for the amplification of the most ridiculous voices. True. The largest voices have the capacity to reach into every single one of our lives, a.k.a. our phones. And so we are being rage-farmed. People are making money off of division, off of hate, off of anger. And so we've kind of gotten to a space that people want to win instead of find the right solution. Right. Right? That's a dangerous place to be. I don't care if I win. There's nothing to win. (laughs) We we need to be working on solutions. And your book really... um It elegantly paves the way for me to rethink my own behavior within systems without using any of the words that I've come to think of as words that you always use when you talk about DEI. Was that on purpose? Yeah. I think that the language has been weaponized, right? And and we've seen this before. Critical race theory is not taught in the second grade. It's a graduate concept. (laughs) But but we've seen people take a couple words and manipulate them to the point that they're not even recognizable, which is why I choose in my work to use very simple language. What are we trying to say here? What do you mean when you're saying this? What do I mean when I'm saying this? So that we hear each other. Um, Because there's an intentionality around us misunderstanding each other. And so I don't feed into that. You know, language has always been tricky. And the English language is particularly tricky because it's a hodgepodge of so many um, other languages. But I see such a profound... um, missing of each other. I, I, I'll i tell you a quick story. I live in Texas, and um, a friend of mine who lives in New York is a startup founder, and she sends me a pitch deck. She says, hey, can you share this with some of your high net worth friends in your network? I'm looking for funding for my business. And, you know, I'm all about a f- founder. Let's go. Yeah. Um, and I reviewed the pitch deck, which you should always do before you send out anything. And her strategy was to start in the middle of the country. And she referred to the strategy as the flyover state strategy. No. (laughs) It took my breath away. I called her. I said, let me understand you. You are reaching out to these people and asking them for money. And you're referring to their homes as places not important enough to stop in. Is that what you're doing? And she was horrified, of course, because that was not her intention. But that's the challenge, right? We don't even think of the thoughtlessness of the words that we use. I mean, Denise, I'll be honest with you. I listen to that and I think, oh, my goodness, how could she have done that? And then right underneath that, I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm really glad that wasn't me. <laughs> right? Because the unconscious bias with which I bludgeon my way through my workday every day is real. It's real. Right? So how, how do we begin to address that? And what do you think of bias training in general? I think it's hard. <laughs> it's a really simple answer, but um, I was listening to an incredible presentation that Neil deGrasse Tyson, the brilliant astrophysicist, was giving. And he was talking about how language sometimes can limit 
scientific advancement because we name something with ourselves as the center, right? Right. From our point of view. From our point of view. It doesn't matter if it's true or if it's right. Like, that's what we name it. So he was talking about the tide, and he was um, reflecting on the fact that the tide does not actually come in and out. It's actually the earth that goes in and out of the water. That's actually a better way to describe it. Wait, so the water just... The water just hangs out exactly as so it is. So there are bulges of water on the earth, too. And the earth literally rotates. And as it rotates, it goes in and out of these bulges of water. That's how he described it. <laughs> so he said, imagine doing a scientific experiment based on the fraudulent language. It's going to be wrong every single time, yeah. right? Every single time. And so... Like, I was obsessed. I talked to everybody I could talk to about that for the two weeks after I heard it. And it occurred to me, you know, that's kind of like sunset. Yeah. The sun doesn't set. It's actually the earth that sets. And I thought about this thought experiment. What if we decided to go on an international campaign to convince everybody to change the term from sunset to earthset? I think it would be a Herculean task, to say the least. (laughs) You'd need a really great branding expert. But I think what's really important about this is it doesn't matter if it's true. Yeah. That realization was really powerful to me. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if it's right. We love our broken language. We love our incomplete stories. We love even the damage. Right. We love it. Right. right? I don't think I could convince a percent of people to change it from sunset to earthset. Right. And so what is bias training? Bias training is trying to take on a thousand terms, not just one. We see the difficulty in this right. discussion of just right. one term. We're trying to take on a thousand terms. It is Herculean, the work. And every time I speak to DEI professionals, I want to go up and give them a hug because this is hard work, uphill work, um, and work that people do not take personal responsibility for. They want to outsource their cultures, right? Outsource this work. And it's like, no, it's your work. It's my work. This is a challenge. I can show this to you, but I can't make you change. Right. I can make you aware, but I can't force you to do anything. So is bias training worth it? Yes. Is bias training going to take a long time? Yes. Right. I see this a lot. I've worked with um, oil and gas Mm. businesses a lot, and this is a really clear um, example of the work how they handled safety, right? There was a time if you worked on a oil field, you're going to lose a finger, you're going to lose an eye. It was so commonplace. Yeah. Now they count the days since the last accident. Okay. If you have an office meeting, in the office they have a safety briefing before the meeting because they changed the value. The value is safety. The value of protection of every person that works there shifted. It didn't happen overnight. So I know we can do this. Right. We just have to have some patience, and patience is not our strong suit. We'll be right back after the break with more from Denise Hamilton. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. Sometimes in conversation about diversity, we focus on understanding people who are different from us. Denise thinks we have that wrong. We need to focus on accepting and respecting people. Once again, here's Denise. We have been indoctrinated about um, empathy. Learn to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Try to put yourself in someone else's position. And that's beautiful advice, but a little flawed. I don't have to walk a mile in your shoes to give you basic human respect. I don't have to understand you to respect you. And we have kind of flip-flopped that. Um, So a a good example of this is how we think about the unhoused, how we think about homelessness as a challenge. We have like a certain level of care, concern, interest for the homeless. Yeah. But if you say homeless vets, oh, that's an entirely different problem. Why, Why is it an entirely different problem? Because we think we understand why a homeless vet is homeless. We afford we, moral authority we to give the experience. Them, oh, yes. Yeah, there's we do. something different about them. And it's like, why don't we just care about people because they need some place to sleep that's safe right. and, and <laughs> some food to eat? Like, why do we have to have a modifier on it right. for us to be legitimately interested? Um, and so this idea that if I don't understand it, then I don't have to love those people. Right. That's really what we're saying. Right. It's it's kind of ridiculous. You told the story that I loved um, about being in college and it didn't end where I thought it was going to end. I love the story. Okay, so (laughs) I'm going to ask you to tell that story. Yeah. When, um, (laughs) you know, I'm from I grew up in New York. So I went to college in Texas and something happened I had never seen before. I'm sitting in class and the teacher is going down the roll and with everyone you know, like if you say my name, Denise Hamilton here, she would say, what do you want to go by? And I was like, what do you mean? My name is Denise Hamilton. I was so confused. But then I was listening to the other people. Mm -hmm. Tyler Jenkins, what do you go by? I go by Bubba, Ricky 
Hamilton, what do you go by? Tyler. <laughs> and I was so, com- I was like, I don't understand. And so afterwards, I went and asked some of them, like, what does your mom call you? Oh, no, she calls me Tyler. Well, why didn't she call you Tyler? Why isn't your name Tyler? The practice completely escaped me of how many people in the South use their middle name as the name that they go by. And I was just like, this is so fascinating. But you know what? I don't have to understand. Mm-mm. If you tell me mm-hmm. that your name is Bubba, Bubba, it is, sir. That's what I will call you every time I see you because you get to name yourself. I don't have to understand. So I have a lot of conversations with clients. They're like, is it, I mean, is it black or is it African-American? Is it Latino or is it Latinx or Hispanic? Denise, I just can't keep up. I just can't keep up. And I'm like, it's whatever we want it to be right. today. These are people that are getting the first opportunities to name themselves. Yeah. Right? I but here's a, the thing. We're yeah. afraid to ask. Yeah. Okay. So I imagine a lot of your clients, they employ somebody like you because they've employed you. And so now you become a safe person to ask. But if they're sitting across from their colleague in their office, they're not going to ask that question that they have. What do you have to offer for mm-hmm. that framing? Well, actually, I want to go back in your question. Okay. They're afraid to ask. Why are they afraid to ask? I think we don't spend time building relationships. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of white friends. I can say, hey, my friend Melissa, Melissa, do you guys use washcloths? And she's not going to be angry with me. She's going to say, why are you asking me this ridiculous question to these Hamilton? <laughs> and we will, we will have a fine conversation about yeah. it. Why? Because we have built a relationship that allows us to have those conversations. So many people want to ask hard questions before they've asked the easy ones. Mm -hmm. They want to have deep conversations before they've even had the middle (laughs) level conversation so they don't have a foundation from which to ask those questions. We are still segregated in our private lives. And that means that we don't know how to interact with each other. We don't know how to actually be friends and, and really connect with one another. And if we could do that, then you can ask any question you want. I have friends that call me and ask me the most ridiculous questions. <laughs> you know, yeah. Denise, explain this to me. I don't understand. Fine, you can do that because I know you're my friend. I know your heart. I know your intention. We don't have trust right. with each other. So as you think about those friendships, like inherent in those friendships is something that you don't speak explicitly in your book, but that is the undercurrent of your book, which is that you go into every relationship assuming best intentions. How do you really do that? I think you have to do that. You have to give yourself the opportunity to meet someone incredible. You have to give yourself the opportunity to meet somebody wonderful. How are you going to do that if you move through the world with a shield, Yeah, with a barrier, right? Now, if you blow it, you blow it. And it's sad for you because I'm truly an incredible friend, right? But I'm not going to move through the world assuming who you are and how you are. I've been the first or the only either African-American or woman in almost every job I've ever had. And um, so many assumptions have been made about me, about how I am, about what I think. Even as I do this work, people are like, they assume what I think about this subject or that subject. It's like, why don't you ask me? I don't say that everyone has to move through the world the way that I do. I am okay. I have a tolerance level of misunderstanding. Everyone doesn't have to process their interaction the way I do because we're all free. But I think when you move through the world 
with what I have been accused of having an inappropriate level of optimism. Um, I just think good things happen to you and good things happen in your life. And I think it's what the future should look like. Just listening to you, I want to believe you. And also, I'm holding the hurt that so many people actually have. And by the way, so many of our listeners have. So many of our listeners are exhausted and beat down from dealing with the level of microaggression, or frankly, as one guest told me recently, macroaggression. Why are we calling it microaggression? And kind of out of gas at a moment when also business is pulling back and even pretending that it cares. So what is the messaging for that community of people right now? First of all, that um, there's more of us than there are of them. And that's a that's a simple way I think about it. I think that discouragement is the biggest weapon that's being used against us right now. Um, I was um, reflecting on the Alabama bus boycott because, I, like I said, I always go back in history to see, have we been here before? When have people felt like this? And I don't know why. In my, I, I don't, I, really, in my mind, I thought it was like a couple weeks. It, it, like just how I learned about it as a child and I've never really delved into it. It was over a year. And then I started thinking, these people did not have jobs like you and I. They did physically grueling, demanding work. And they walked to and from work every day in Alabama in a hundred degree heat after doing a, like, I want us to really get the picture, but they did it for over a year. Yeah. We do stuff for two weeks and we're exhausted. We just can't figure it out. I, I think we need a stamina. We need a tenacity. We can't afford to not be mm-hmm. capable and strong and focused. And this idea of these loud voices right. that are offensive, right? But we amplify them. How many of us share the negative meme that's sent to us? You know, Charlie Kirk the other day said something. When I see a black pilot in the cockpit, I'm nervous. Like, you should be the authority on what <laughs> qualifications there are for one of the most regulated professions on earth to fly a, a commercial air. Like, it's just ridiculous. Right. 200 people sent me that clip. Yeah. 200 people. So it worked as a weapon. Our outrage yeah. is being harvested, and we are spreading it. We're sharing these stories far and wide. Right. And what if we stopped? What if we, like we say, oh, they, they're so loud. They have the biggest voices. We're amplifying their voices because of our horror and our outrage. What if we stopped? What if we didn't give that a listening to? What if we listened to people that were actually doing things, creating things, solving problems, but those stories aren't as interesting, right? They don't right. get the clicks. Well, speaking of stories, I really appreciate the way that you ask all of us to remember that a story is just that, and our stories can shift as we get new information. And maybe some of the work that each of us can be doing is actually asking ourselves deep questions about our own stories and opening our mind to even the potential of a, a small shift. Am I getting that right? You're getting that 100% right. Um, I do a lot of work with uh, mid-career women specifically um, and executive women about the 
stories that are in your head. You know, you can't be an executive and have kids. They're never going to make a petite woman head of that division. You have to have a loud voice or you're not going to, you know, these stories all sound familiar. They're all bouncing are around. Are you in my head? <laughs> Do you know me? Are we, are we friends? No. Like, like they're, they're bouncing around yeah. in our head and they animate how you move, right? right. And and one of, one of the things that I try to do is I always swap the nouns. I always try to change the story a little bit so you get the principle and it's a little bit clearer. Let's say I really want to have a husband. I am single and I want to be married. But I walk around saying all men are dogs. You know they all cheat. You know they can't be trusted. There's just no good men left. How do you think you're ever going to find that relationship? You don't even believe you're going to ever find that relationship. So how do you introduce the magical thinking that allows either of those two narratives that you just introduced to begin to intersect? I think you have to replace them with new stories. Mm. Yeah. You have to challenge yourself to just meet different people and actually hear for yourself. And that means leaving your bubble. Right, because we right. all have a bubble. We all have a bubble. There's this idea that you like. You just really beautifully articulate, which is that um, things that we think are immutable can actually change. They can change quickly, and they can change in our lifetime. And you illustrate a few examples of when you've seen this yourself. And the one that moved me was the way that you laughed when you heard that uh, President Obama would be running for president. Hysterically, out loud. <laughs> I'm actually, uh, you know, one day, I know, knock on wood, one day I'm going to meet him and I'm going to be embarrassed because <laughs> it is true. When I heard that Barack Obama announced his bid for presidency, I laughed out loud. I thought it was the most ridiculous thing because I just knew there could never be a black president in my lifetime. It's not possible. It was a ruling belief for you. It was a ironclad governing belief that it could never happen. And it didn't just happen once. It happened twice. And I had to remind so far. myself. So, so far. far, right? And that's only so far. I had to remind myself that you cannot allow the disappointments of yesterday to limit the possibility of tomorrow. You just can't. You cannot. You'd be a fool to do that. And that's the principle I try to govern my life with. Like, let the story change. A lot of us are afraid to do that. But if we can do that, I think we can be indivisible. And if we can be indivisible, I think we would be indestructible. That was Denise Hamilton. You can check out her new book, Indivisible, wherever books are sold. There's so much that I'm still processing from this conversation. A few things jump to mind. First, I'm really thinking through this idea of respecting someone versus understanding them. Too often we feel we need to understand why someone is making a request before we honor it. Denise asks us to flip that. Respect a request related to someone's identity in particular, regardless of whether you understand it. Another way to say that, center someone else's experience, not your own. Second, Denise talks again and again about the role that divisiveness plays as a weapon in our culture and in our discourse. We use humiliation as a way to other each other, sending political memes through cyberspace. I know I've done it. When we do this, we are being played. 
We're falling victim to divisiveness as a weapon. We have another choice. We can commit to checking our own biases at every turn and seeking to broaden our conversations. Last, Denise asks us to believe that our stories can change. It's that simple. Become optimists. This is an action we can choose to take. So let's opt in. I hope you'll join us this week for Office Hours. We'll revisit this idea of equity. How do we check our own biases? How do we build the types of relationships that allow us to be in real conversations with each other? Come share your experience with us this Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. We'll go live from the LinkedIn news page. If you have trouble finding us, email us at hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll send you a link. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer helps us imagine more equitable futures. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. I married a woman from Mississippi. Our daughter's name is Alice Camille Clayton. What do you think we call her? Not Camille. Camille. <laughs> <laughs>